0: Here comes a sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say. It has to be the US way or no way. And this is not what we can stand for. You know, it came to Kyoto and then it walked out. It came to Paris and then walked out. Now you come back again and you say that it is on our terms. No way, no way, Jose, as we would say. Here comes a sun. I say. For the longest time, we've always uh, believed that if real progressive transformation is to happen, we have to work in the belly of the beast. And we have to stand in solidarity with all the Blacks and the Latinos and the the Global South in the North. Our struggles are together and we've always known this.
1: this is Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national and your international movement building show. I'm here today with Mina Rahman, with the Third World Network, who I've known pretty much forever. I'm one of the leaders of the Third World movements in the world, but especially inside the United Nations, where there's just an endless fight with the EU and the United States who are trying to take over the world. And as everybody knows, the Strategy Center is allied with the Third World, and our members are primarily Black and Latinx. And so we consider ourselves part of the Third World inside the United States. And we've worked with the Third World Network, and in particular, chi Gling, and then shortly thereafter, MENA, for over 30 years. So also, we come out of the last Uh, We've been at the World Conference Against Racism, the World Summit on Sustainable Development. We played a very active role in COP 21 in Paris in 2015. And I left that conference with a, writing a series of articles, but it said COP 21, uh, a victory for Obama, a defeat for the planet, a challenge to the environmental movement. So, not much has changed, Meena. Uh, I wanted to ask you several, just two questions to start. Tell our listeners more about the Third World Network first, and then I'll get to my second question.
0: Yeah, the Third World Network uh, is headquartered in Malaysia, um, and it was uh, set up by partners, particularly from the developing world, who gathered at a conference, and they felt that it was very vital to have an organization that would put the third world first, of course, and that to to articulate the voices of uh, the global South, because we found that uh, whether it was in the media, whether it's international spaces, the voice of the South is underrepresented. And even um, there's a lot of bias in terms of reporting. And so it's always a Western bias narrative that uh, put out. So we um, were, um, had, I mean, formed the organization, sometimes in, sometime in the mid 80s, 86, if I'm not mistaken, um, basically to uh, give the voice to the South. So we actually are rooted in um, grassroots struggles, uh, working with uh, partners who are engaged with indigenous peoples, local farmers, um, local communities, um, taking the experience of um, all the communities on the ground, and then um, looking at how international institutions have actually shaped the policies of developing countries. And so we, um, we discovered that, well, we'll realize that although um, many of our countries gained political independence, they were not independent. From the way the colonial um, masters had envisioned, how our development model would be, how we are very rooted in uh, um, a financial and economic system that actually undermines um, national policy making and most importantly undermines the grassroots communities and their policy options and the way they they produce and um, the way they consume and all the Western consumerism. And as as Eric, you said, uh, Rio plus 20, we all remember that our production systems and consumption patterns totally out of sync, totally irrational, and the selling of the American lifestyle as the lifestyle that has to be emulated throughout the world, which has now led to this massive climate problem. Um, and of course, um, deteriorating environment on all fronts.
1: You know, when I met Yoling, that's an excellent summary. You know, when I met Yoling in 1992, we were we were I was organizing in a uh, part of California called Wilmington, which is where all the oil refineries were, and the community was almost all Latino immigrant, suffering tremendous ecological and public health crisis, you know, bad lungs, emphysema, everything. And, you know, I have built my whole life in opposition to US imperialism, starting with the war in Vietnam and the black movement. And, Yo know, Kling said to me, here I am in Malaysia, and in some of the most rural, backward areas of Malaysia, they're still watching US TV.
0: <laughs> yes. And the
1: penetration, the cultural penetration of imperialism is the greatest obstacle we have, which is how do we have sovereignty if they militarily have all their bases, they interfere in our internal affairs and they culturally try to dominate the ideology of our own people. So uh, we begin from a common perception, Uh, I'm very proud of the work you do. I consider the Strategy Center considers you one of our closest allies. I want to move immediately to the mathematics of climate and the temperature conversations. Uh, Besides every policy being totally dishonest, uh, false promises, double counting, which we'll get to, I myself am having trouble with the actual measurement of the climate crisis today. For instance, I'm understanding that at Glasgow they're talking about uh, setting a limit at 1.5. When I was in Paris, people were saying, two degrees Celsius is already built into the pipeline. some people. Other people were telling me, and I was studying it, that in sub-Saharan Africa and and, and Antarctica, the climate is at least a half a degree hotter than what's perceived as the average. That's my primitive understanding of it. Why don't you walk us through, as the COP26 is claiming it's going to try to keep the world at 1.5, what are the actuals right now throughout the world? the best you can understand.
0: Well, I think the um, uh, the focus a lot is actually on what the science says, right? right? Right, And everybody talks about what the science says, um, even though you have uh, large parts of the U.S. who deny the science still today. But the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which actually is right. uh, thousands of scientists have come together, they just released a few months ago and sometime in August um, uh, what's called the physical science report, um, and they uh, are going to be releasing another two reports, which will uh, will come next year. But this is on the physical science, so, so they looked at the latest science in terms of of all the warming and the temperature and the um, and and what's happening, and what they actually have acknowledged and reconfirmed much more this time around that certainly the warming is happening because of anthropogenic interference, which means human cost. For the longest time, there was a lot of denial that, particularly in the United States, that human beings had anything to do with global warming. So so that that science is, uh, is just reaffirmed even more. But what's even more critical was that this report actually showed that there's a linear relationship between historical and cumulative emissions. Meaning every ton of CO2 has a warming effect. So this is very important for us in the developing world because there is a big, um, um, you know, denial of historical responsibility of the largest, uh, um, you know, historical emitter, which is the United States. And the opening ceremony of the Glasgow talks, Boris Johnson talked about why the talks were being held in Glasgow. Because he said that this was where the first steam engine was, and we had used coal, they had no realization then the effects of uh, coal and fossil fuels. So, so he used the term um, uh, "we have a responsibility," but he did not say historical responsibility. Right, right. So th- th- this is the essence of the fight under the Framework Convention. If you remember the UN Framework Convention of Climate Change. Is actually a daughter of the Rio Summit, right? The common but differentiated right. responsibility. Yes. Um, that that and then looking at per capita, um, if you look at the emissions, U.S. till today, even now, in terms of the per capita emission, the U.S. is still the highest in terms of per capita. If I'm not mistaken, somewhere around 21 or uh, tons uh, per capita, which is really high. Right. And, and the U.S. constantly focuses the problem on China and India. Now, China and India are large population countries and this was the same fight in Rio. Yes. They were, the western world was accusing the, the large countries and they said the population is the problem. Um, of course, population maybe can be a contributor but they blamed everything on the Chinese and the Indians and uh, and only to say that uh, from a per capita standpoint, the Chinese are, uh, are much, much lower than the United States. I stand to be corrected, but they are not in the 20 double digit per capita. They are less than that. And same for the Indians. The Indians are much less per capita than China. So this whole focus on the U.S. ever since they were in Kyoto, Al Gore and his team, uh, it was realized that the developed countries... Who had most of the historical emissions, they were not doing enough. So we needed to have a protocol and that was called the Kyoto Protocol. And so at the Kyoto Protocol, if you remember, the US was then a party. And um, what they did was on the back of an envelope, all the countries just said, the NX1 party said, we will do emissions reductions um, only at a level of reduction by 5% compared to 1990 levels. Now, what is 5% compared to 1990 levels? It's really very low. And this was in 1997. And so soon after that, um, the US left the protocol, because China was not a party to the protocol. And they said, no way, we are going to go into any agreement where China is not there. Now sounds familiar, right? This is the the same history that repeats itself. So they walked out of the Kyoto Protocol and then we came to Bali in 2007 uh, at the Bali conference in Indonesia. There was an attempt to bring back the United States, um, back into the uh, negotiations. And so there was the launch of the Bali talks and basically on two tracks. There was a first commitment period and then there's a second commitment period. And that second commitment period is 2013 to 2020. So the first commitment, 2007 to 2012. So in the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, the nx Annex One parties agreed that they would, um, at that time, they only pledged to they they committed to 18 percent emission reductions by um, 2020 compared to 1990 levels. But they agreed that in 2014 they would revise this. Much more to at least in the region of 25% to 40% emission reductions.
1: What you're listening to, besides the fact that this is just a really great movement veteran, uh, Mina Roman, is that there's a, uh, there's a story here. Imagine people who have gone every single year since Rio, uh, the Strategy Center was formed in 1989. When was Rio, like 1990?
0: 1990...
1: 92. 92, that's the first time I became aware of all these issues, right? So imagine the Rio conference where they talked about common and differentiated responsibilities. But,
0: but, common and, but, common but. What did I say? You said common end. It's common Sorry. but differentiated. But, yeah,
1: right, right, but differentiated responsibilities and polluter pays, right? And of course, the United States totally disregarded that. So the story you're telling, and then there's other people want to talk about when Obama got in, when you hear the word Copenhagen, you hear about a terrible story of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama sabotaging that conference. So Mina is trying to walk you through, uh, we're talking about 1992, uh, 27 years of broken promises, essentially. which the indigenous people would say, that's not bad compared to, we have 500 years of broken promises. Intergovernmental panel on climate change. What is the perception of the maximum actual climate of the planet right today?
0: Well, I think uh, they say, well, we, there is this acknowledgement that it's 1.1 degree um, higher Yeah, the warming compared to pre-industrial levels. So our temperature is already at 1.1. All right. Where is
1: the second question? Is it true that there are higher measurements, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa?
0: Yes, because 1.1 is, um, and when we talk about 2 degrees or or 1.5 degrees uh, limit, that's a global average. Right. So there are, there are temperatures in parts of the world, which is much higher. And you're very right about um, Africa. In fact, at the opening ceremony of the World Leaders Summit, we had a very powerful voice. You can actually get your readers or listeners to go to the um, opening ceremony of the uh, COP26. Okay. There was a voice of a young woman from a youth from Kenya, Right. and she was very graphic in her um explanation about the impacts they were facing in terms of the long droughts already the sahel is affected by you know it's it's almost um you know a desert and so the temperatures there were were much higher than i think i i, I can't remember what exactly the number she gave but it was a, it was really frightening because of the Long droughts, the inability to produce food, um, agricultural communities not being able to to um, produce, the hunger and the poverty. I mean, it was just graphic, and we are already seeing that now. So the the higher the temperature rises, basically, what you will have is large amount, large numbers of people who will not be able to live off land anymore, and they would be having to, having to migrate. To other parts of the regions, and that, of course, would exacerbate human conflict um, and and uh, and and civil wars huh, between between uh, peoples because of the of the displacement um, due to climate induced impacts. So, so that was very very striking. So, this temperature that we talk about. Um, what we also understand, as I said, that this is the first report of the IPCC. It's called the fifth, the sixth assessment. Yeah, so the right. physical science of the f- sixth assessment. We are told that the next report, which will come out in sometime in February, that will be about the, vul- the climate impacts and vulnerability and adaptation. Now that's going to be even more alarmist and scary. Um, because already the physical sciences report is heralded as a code red for humanity right. um, and a big alarm, but that next report is going to show how the, um, we are reaching a lot of the extreme events: forest fires, as we know, even in your own country, Australia burning. Um, you know, intense rainfalls never seen before, much more frequent. Um, and everything going chaos, eh? and the the thawing of the permafrost, the uh, melting of the glaciers, at much greater speed. So, so the the Mother Earth, as we say, is is in crisis. She's she's been crying out loud. She's been she's been giving warnings, but the humanity, and particularly the rich world, has not paid attention, and they continue to ignore. So, coming back to the mm-hmm. to the yeah, sorry. Well, yeah well, sorry. No,
1: you're doing great. You're doing great, Mina. So, in terms of our listeners, uh, we're gonna have on our Voices from the Frontlines dot uh, com website after the interview conversation with Mina. We're gonna have a reading list of many of the references she's making here. We will do our homework ourselves to make sure we get it all right. It'll also be in an email that we'll send in preparation for when this show is actually aired, you will have received this, uh, there'll be some third world network publications, there'll be the, uh, you know, the uh, intergovernmental report. Panel, 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 yeah. Intergovernmental yeah. Panel, on panel on Climate Change Report and several others uh, because you need to know the facts and then we'll try to get you on some mailing lists. Um, let me tell you where I want to take you. I mean if this is okay, um, in 19, in two thousand fifteen, we went. The Strategy Center went with the objective of trying to prep, get all the delegates to take on the U.S. government, right? And we had a slogan: "What are we going to do about the United States?" That I don't know if you remember. We that came out in uh, two thousand and two in uh, Johannesburg, when some leading UN figure, not knowing his microphone on, said, what are we going to do about the United States? And we all the delegates, the NGO delegates, heard that. I think that was actually in Bali. And so we printed, what are we going to do about the United States? T-shirts and marched all over the place. In 2015, we went to try to help put pressure on the Obama administration. In our opinion, John Kerry and others both terrorized people in Paris. I mean, threatened, took people aside in the green room and threatened them, and Obama charmed them. I remember hearing people from the small island states who had been so militant go, well, he's an island boy, he wouldn't hurt us. I'm going, oh, my God, the island he's from is called U.S. imperialism. You know, he's not from Hawaii. He is born in Hawaii. But I saw the way that between charm and threat, it was hard for people to want to take on the United States. What's happening today in Glasgow in terms of pressure on England, pressure on the United States? How's that going? Um, It's the same. It
0: has not as uh, the, the US is, uh, well, after Biden left, and sorry, after Trump left, so you really have a very low baseline, right? A right. climate denier, um, you know, <laughs> who, who didn't bother, who walked out of the Paris Agreement. Right. And then now you have Biden come back. So it's like, oh, again, the US is back. So we will all need to revolve around the US again to make sure it keeps. Uh, we keep them. But th- that it's, it's, it's again the same line of either their way or no way. And that we cannot have. Sure. And this is why we, we, you know, I the one other thing I need to say is that, you know, when we talk about the historical emissions and the cumulative emissions, what we need to realize is that the IPCC report says that much of that emissions um, he's uh, all uh, about you know, you have what's called a carbon budget,
1: right?
0: Within a, within a temperature limit, whether it's two degrees, whether it's 1.5, um, and it says that for a 50% probability of limiting temperature rise to 1.5, the remaining carbon budget is only 500 gigatons of CO2. Okay. Now, at current emission trends, this budget will be exhausted. In within a decade. So we have about 10 years. Right. Right. So now that Biden is back, I mean, the whole world is again like, you know, how do we keep the United States in? So, you know, it has to be the US way or no way. And this is not what we can stand for. You know, it came to Kyoto and then it walked out. It came to Paris and then walked out. Now you come back again and you say that it is on our terms. No way, no way, Jose, as we would say. So, so the point is this, that I was also talking about how very little carbon budget left. Right, right. And the rich world, they've all come here with net zero pledges. I think your audience needs to understand this. The Paris Agreement never talked about a country by country net zero. It talked about a global aspiration to what, they, what the term they used was balance between emissions and sinks by mid-century. Which is interpreted to be net zero globally. But when you have the developed world, together with the UN and others, um, pushing them to say all countries go to net zero, so you have the US net zero by 2050, UK net zero by 2050, and others, it is unfair because there is no more room for the rich world to continue emissions. Right. That, that 500 gigaton budget that we are talking about, actually, the reason why only so little is left is because of the overuse of atmospheric space, which is actually about 60% of that space being used by the rich world, um, the Western world. So you can't come and say, oh, we're going to do net zero, and we're going to be heroes. You're really far away from what you need to do. In fact, a lot of US groups climate justice movements, they use this term called fair shares, world overview, what's a fair share? And if they look at what um, the U.S. ought to do, they talk about U.S. has to reduce emissions by 190%. Right. So coming and saying we are going to do net zero by 2050, Biden is no hero. He, and if we allow the, the rich world to pretend as if they're going to save the world, and they're not telling you about the remaining budget and there's really a big smoke screen here so you have the uk and others who are going to say oh we've got so many countries um, who have announced net zero pledges we are on the path to keeping 1.5 degree alive and we are going to use carbon markets and carbon offsets and we are going to invest in forests and we have trillions of dollars playing a lot of smokescreen screen and greenwashing So for people who don't look at what's behind all this, um, it's it's very very tragic that there is a there is an attempt to actually pull wool over our eyes. It's a big illusion.
1: Biden started out with a 3.5 trillion dollar so-called infrastructure package. It finally passed yesterday at about 1.2. a substantial amount of that is the so-called transportation. But in the U.S. transportation bill, 80% must go to highways. And only 20%, that is to say, in the Department of Transportation, any new money, 80% must go to highways, and 20% must go to public transportation. Of that money, almost all has to go to what's called capital projects, and none to operations. Now, operations means that if the federal government took all that money away from the highways, they could make free transportation for everybody because we already have enough buses and trains for the most part. So you could take half the money and only build buses and trains. Half the money to give to people for fare reduction to zero, and no money for the highways and no money for the auto. So if the U.S. claims it's going to reduce to net zero, the whole Biden infrastructure plan is a net plus, 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 plus for more emissions. There's a guy named Joe Manchin, who's an idiot from West Virginia, who represents the coal industry. He has one vote. But that one vote is for coal, 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 coal. And Biden needs that one vote. So Biden said, please do something so I can go to Glasgow and look good. Well, Hmm. from somebody in the United States, he didn't look good before he went. And he doesn't look good now. So who in the third world do you think is doing the best job of trying to reduce its own emissions? Let's talk about China and India.
0: Okay. Um, The civil society groups have actually um, analyzed. Good. From a fair share perspective, that means we take into account historical emissions, right, fair look, at, yeah, look at cumulative emissions, and then we look at the, the few, the, what they have committed and put on the table. What it clearly shows is that um, India is doing below its fair share. In fact, if you Google Civil Society Equity Review, it's called Civil Society Equity Review, you would see. And, um, and um, India is way below. And China, it's, uh, it's below its fair shares, but if it's not careful, it can exceed its fair shares. But I think what we need to recognize is that um, the difference in US and China and India, as I said before, it's related to per capita, right? Of
1: course, of course. And,
0: it also is in, in, and the number of um, people um, who who are still poor, the millions. Now the whole world claps um, for China, you know, removing people out of poverty. If you if you look at when they were doing this assessment of reduction in poverty and numbers and so on, they will praise China for reducing poverty, and that's because. Rightly, or, I mean, rightly or wrongly, it's been very difficult because it is the energy systems which are in place are still fossil fuel based. And right. the case of China is also coal. In the case of India, it's coal, and of course, coal is becoming um, it, it's, it, it. has to be phased out. There's no doubt about it. I think the developing countries as a whole have already agreed that they would they would do as much as they can, but they can only do as much as they can. Number one, if There is technology transfer. In the case of the Chinese, if you you remember, they were exporting solar panel exports, there was a trade dispute or there was a complaint against China. Also by the European Union, I think. So anyway, the long and short of it all is that um, all countries will have to go on the pathway of low emissions, low carbon emissions. Um, The rich world when it became rich. Now, how did it become rich? It became rich because there was no constraint on emitting, relying on fossil fuels and becoming rich. They didn't become rich because, you know, the US is smarter or the Europeans are smarter. It's not because you all are smarter than the rest of us. It's because of the history of colonialism and the industrial revolution and not being constrained at that time. And then for all our our economies to be oriented in the way of the Western world, you know, all the the factories and whatever, as you know, were exported to China. So it became the the manufacturing basket for the rest of the world. And then all the products that are produced goes back to the Western world in terms of consumption. So if you really look at how much of China's emissions is China's own emissions, you should be asking about how much of that production emissions is actually Western oriented Consum- right. uh, both from the production side and the consumption side, you will see a different equation. And in fact, the richest 10% of the world are the ones who are emitting uh, most of the emissions, more than uh, of, you know almost 60% of the emissions, 10% of the world with 60% of the emissions. And of the richest people, the bulk of them are in the Western world. So wh- however you look at it, this issue of equity, Becomes a very important aspect. And the United States hates the word equity. Right. Um, and they completely try to obliterate that. And historical responsibility, equity, all are, are dirty words for them. So, like I was talking, even intellectual property, yeah. When the developing world was trying so hard to say that, look, we have a global problem. We need to resolve this in a cooperative way. We cannot have intellectual property on climate technologies. The US and Japan and, and uh, uh, Europe and all that it. You cannot use these words. Intellectual property rights is a terminology which is banned from use in the UNFCCC. So you can do, you can do any search and you won't find it. IPRs, because that is the monopoly of the of the uh, Western corporations. So well, let me if, let me add
1: something yeah. if I could, Mina. That just you made a slight reference to. I just want to be very clear that there's a small number of us in the United States who never use the word "we" or "us" about the United States. Mm. We are we are not part. We never say we. <laughs> but we always say they. Yeah. And we always say that we are with the third world. So let's be very clear.
0: Yeah, When I
1: was at, I was at the uh, 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto in Paris, and, you know, all these European Marxists are getting up. I'm a French Marxist. I'm an Italian Marxist. I'm thinking, no, you're an Italian imperialist. And then when I got up, I said, just to be clear, I'm an anti-American. And <laughs> all the people from the third world came over and started hugging me. So we are in the anti-American group uh, in the United States. And the thing you said about unfettered, just want to take a minute, which we both know, that the Western world is barbarian. And the Western world was built unfettered, meaning genocide, meaning just the, the most grotesque barbarian treatment of other civilizations that were more advanced than them the theft of land, the theft of people, genocide being their actual form of social organization in order to, with, to demolish everybody in its path under a theory of uh, racial and otherwise uh, uh, religious and racial superiority uh, in which it was punish- punishable by death to not be Christian and European. So you and I know that, but I'm just saying we say that in the United States. Uh, And we say to people in the United States that the reason the United States even hates the the word equity, let alone priority, is because they're still carrying out genocide against Blacks, Indigenous, and uh, Latino people in the United States, let alone in the third world
0: absolutely the united, the united
1: states cannot operate under any restrictions in the united nations it can it will not recognize it won't recognize its own civil rights laws that it's breaking yeah. so it's like an unfettered that's their word what you said i just wanted to reinforce this is like a a monster yeah that cannot accept any forms of restrictions on its behavior. Yep. Um, so I just want to know, you don't always have to say it. We're saying it here too.
0: Excellent. Very good. Excellent.
1: Okay. So let's go to the last part, which is the third world. What We know that one of the, the, the demands is technology transfer. We know that one of the demands is loss and damages, which means that the... People who created the pollution, like the United States, must pay loss and damages. We know the United States opposed any form of that conversation in Paris. Is there anything where we think the third world is making any effective incursions on the EU and the United States at Glasgow?
0: In relation to EU, I think we we need to watch carefully because um you know there is a there at least in some areas they seem to be a little bit more flexible uh, is, is, is the language that uh, the negotiators will use um but the us is belligerent it it's a, it's right. a super it's, it's a, this thing about loss and damage finance is a super red line for them they will never have anything to do with loss and damage finance um And uh, so so that's a big, big issue that uh, we are having in, in Glasgow. Whether how that will be resolved next week, we will have to see. So I don't have much hope that the US will be more flexible. I know that the midterm elections is happening in the US and it seems that the Democrats are shaky. So when you have a very hostile kind of environment in the US, you will never have much progress so the U.S. will stand firm. And the issue is whether how much the developing countries will will call out on the U.S. I think that's what we need to see. Um, yeah, and
1: I think we will help you in any, any way we can. I mean, great. Um, you know, I mean, I know you know this, but sometimes there are things I can say that you couldn't quite say, even though we think, is, you know, The Strategy Center is located in south-central Los Angeles. It's located in the Black community that has suffered a genocide where Black people were 25% of the population of Los Angeles in 1970. They're now 8%. They've been driven out of their land, their areas of Black concentration. They've been driven out of every single job market that they used to be in, even domestic work, janitorial work, uh, replaced by Mexican labor for the most part because of an anti-Blackness, you know, a punishing Black people for their rebellions. And I think the United States is a white settler state that is still based on a a form of savagery. So Biden had a momentary break by just sort of running as a very mild-mannered guy at a point where Trump was burning down the country and 500,000 people were dying of covid Trump almost still won
0: exactly still,
1: and then he was so confident that he tried to overthrow the government and almost succeeded
0: yeah
1: so, so Biden knows this and Biden is trying to calm the white masses you know which cannot be calmed they're insatiable and their hatred now of some called critical race theory, which is not even a great, you know, it's just an academic, but it's sort of anything that sounds like criticism of whites.
0: Yeah. is
1: enough to drive them into insanity. Yeah. So back to you, given that this is the country we're trying to operate in, <laughs> um, where is the hope for you in terms of allies of the third world this is where we're going to end.
0: For the longest time, um, Eric, We've always uh, believed that if real progressive transformation is to happen, if we have to work in the belly of the beast, right. which is the United States, Like which people like you. And we have to stand in solidarity with all the, the Blacks and the Latinos and the, and the global South in the North. And we our struggles are together and we've always known this. And now there is a reinventing of the... You know, we all talk about the capitalist system and how it is—it uh, is systemically driven everyone to to the crisis that we see now, and that the only way that that we can we can overturn that is to have a massive uprising in the belly of the beast and also in other parts of our own world. Um, the problem there is that the, it reinvents itself, and here in Glasgow, it's a lot of greenwashing so much of greenwashing that ordinary people do not know the difference between uh, um, you know what is what are right solutions and false solutions and the smoke screens so there's a lot of work to do i mean we don't give up um, you know eric you me your kling i mean we are we are aging as we go i mean the, the 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 youth movement that we see i mean the people have criticized greta thunberg because she's a white child from from stockholm that she doesn't know what's happening in our part of the world but i sympathize i i am an ally of her because i think her voice is powerful her voice is powerful because precisely because she's white precisely because she's young precisely because of the 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 western world needs to listen to her. And she has a lot of messages about equity, about the people of the south, about the you know, um, um, and, and she understands. she understands inequity and the and the and she called out on the government, says, blah, blah. Uh, so you know the the powers that be have to respond to that youth, that rising youth, that rebelliousness that is being well, you know, born, But we have to turn that into the real kind of transformation that we need in every part of the world. Um, Let me ask you this. That's
1: wonderful. Because I'm trying to understand Greta Thunberg better, is she anti-colonial in her concepts and rhetoric?
0: I don't know. I don't know because I haven't really interacted. But she actually does talk about equity. She talks about loss and damage. She talks about historical responsibility.
1: Good. good.
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, there are people that we work with who work with her. So, and there's a lot of education we can do of the young people even more to show them that this is actually a deep, deep systemic crisis rooted in savagery and genocide and, and racism. And that's what we are confronting.
1: Well, that was a beautiful end for you. I mean that. And let me end on this way, that uh, I'm sort of uh, aging in the direction of getting younger. Um, mm. I am seriously working on my health and my energy is good because you and me and Yo Ling and others, we still carry the historical memory, the revolutionary perspective as an intersection with the young people, but I'm starting this National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. Great. To teach history, to teach organizers an anti-imperialist perspective, a third world perspective on social change. And one of the things that's very sad is that I was there at a time when, I mean, there were tens of millions, I repeat, tens of millions of white people in the United States on the side of black people in the third world. We were never the majority, never. The majority was always on the other side, but we had deep solidarity with the Panthers, with the civil rights movement, and that was crushed. That was crushed by the crushing of the black movement in this country, by the crushing of everything. You know what I mean? The system came down starting with, you're not even starting with Nixon and then Reagan and then Clinton. And their whole thing has been to destroy everything we've built. So the result is there's not a great transition between the movements of the 60s and 70s and today. And a lot of the young people today have contempt for us. And they really think they're reinventing something. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, so we are reaching back out to them, because we have young people in our group, yeah. To say without the traditions of yeah. Kenya, without if you didn't know who the Mao Mao were, if you didn't know about the Chinese yeah. Revolution, if yeah. you didn't know about the British genocide in India, yeah, right, if you didn't know that the Indians played a very strong role yeah. in, in Bantung. Anyway, you get it. It's our job yeah. We, they need us around. That's my point. These young people need us around. And I'm so happy, Mina, that you and me and yokling we got to have a reunion soon.
0: <laughs> we will. We will. I thought it will be a short conversation, but it's been a long one. Huh?
1: Yes, I knew it would be. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the last word to talk to our listeners all over the world.
0: Well, listeners all over the world, yes. This COP26 is not uh, uh, usual. It is taking place at a time when we still find tremendous vaccine inequity. I mean, unbelievable. People are die because they don't get vaccines because of the apartheid policies of the ritual. There's absolutely no humanity. We don't give up hope. We continue to believe that it's only people power that will change. I don't mean it rhetorically, but I actually mean it in every sense of the word. Let's continue to reclaim the power in the hands of people like all of us.
1: So Mina, thank you for everything you've done. Uh, Tell people how to reach the Third World Network, and that's how we're going to end the show.
0: www.twn.my. It's Malaysia, so it's MY. Feel free to connect with us. We hope that we can only grow stronger.
1: Well, Mina Roman, you helped me grow stronger. So thank you for everything. Thanks for extending the day and take very good care of yourself.
0: You too, Eric, you too.
2: With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with voices from the front lines and our take on news from South Central to the Global South. We open with an important voice from the COP26 Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, UK. Vanessa Nakate is a 24-year-old climate justice activist from Uganda who is currently on the front lines of fighting government inaction in regards to the global climate emergency.
0: Because of the rising global temperatures, the weather patterns keep changing and my country, Uganda, heavily depends on agriculture for survival for many communities, especially those in the rural areas. So it means a lack of rain means hunger, starvation and death for very many people. and extreme rainfall also means destruction, it means hunger, means starvation and leaving many many people homeless. So what we really want is a future that is healthy, that is sustainable, that is clean, that is livable and equitable for all of us. What do we want? What
2: do we want it? Yeah. The Kampala University student says Africa faces some of the most brutal impacts of climate change, including violent cyclones, extreme drought, massive flooding, deadly landslides, and famine-inducing locusts. All this while only having contributed 3% of global CO2 emissions. Nakate says voices from the global south have been silenced and quite literally removed from the picture. In a recent Associated Press meeting, Nakate and four other youth activists took part in an interview and photoshoot. The four white activists came out in the photo while she was cropped out at the final edit. Nakate said this removal was symbolic of the debate surrounding climate change that often ignores or silences voices from the South. She says people in these communities aren't just victims, they're also the ones actively surviving and adapting to disaster after human-caused climate disaster. She said that until their voices are included and elevated in climate conversations, the needed progress on climate action will remain out of reach. It's one of the reasons that Nikate feels compelled to elevate the voices of African climate activists specifically. Starbucks Workers United is an organized labor group that is working to unionize thousands of the coffee chains, baristas and staff members at several New York locations. They're also trying to expose the company's unprecedented union busting as the drive has garnered national attention and a sharp rebuke from corporate suits. The union is filing petitions with the National Labor Relations Board to add three Buffalo area stores to the list of those requesting union votes. Starbucks workers sat down with New York Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to discuss the union busting. Former AFL-CIO organizing director Richard Benzinger called it the most vicious anti-union campaign that he's seen in almost five decades. People from higher up in corporate flying straight in from Seattle in suits wearing, you know, Armani, whatever you want to say, sweeping our floors, cleaning our toilets, going, look, we care about you. We're here, aren't we? two days after we filed. When you come in, there's already going to be three people there. And by the time that those people leave, they're going to be replaced by like another three people. And they're just on the floor watching everything that's happening. Um, At the very beginning of the campaign the only place that we were able to organize was sort of like in the back of the store Mm -hmm. The entire area is dominated. There's no place to have a union conversation And so for people who are more on the fence, it's impossible to have a candid conversation within work They started out hosting these store meetings that were like framed as listening sessions Um, But basically they very quickly turned into just anti-union meetings There's actually um, more people
1: here to fight the union from out of the state store managers district managers hr people from all over uh-huh. seattle then there are employees voting in the election i've been i'm the former organizing director of the aflcl this is the by far the largest most intense most hostile vicious campaign i've seen in 46 years period
0: i think something that's important for us to remember is that the most powerful thing that we have
2: is solidarity mm-hmm. right solidarity Workers involved in the union effort say top Starbucks officials have devoted extraordinary attention to the Buffalo market in recent weeks, including visits from Roseanne Williams and Howard Schultz, the chain's president and chairperson, respectively. Starbucks Workers United is asking for supporters to join in the campaign by following their Twitter at S.B. Workers United and contacting them via email sbworkersunited at gmail.com in latin america nicaragua's supreme electoral council has just certified daniel ortega of the sandinista friend alliance as the official victor of the central american nation's presidential election ortega was re-elected for a fourth consecutive term of office that runs until 2027. these elections have shown that the majority of the nicaraguan people continue to trust president ortega after four presidential terms amidst multiple destabilizing attempts perpetrated against him. Many Sandinista supporters have taken to social media like Twitter to protest a widespread and uncontestable ban on supporters of the president. When indie media demanded an explanation from Twitter, the San Francisco-based media giant said it was clearing out accounts that they considered to be bots. And response, hundreds of expelled account holders held a digital day of protest accusing Twitter of working with U.S. intelligence to undermine Nicaragua's democratic election process. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio.
1: And so I got to face the final Friends, I'll stay clear And state my
2: case Of which I'm certain
1: So everybody, a pretty amazing show. See you next week. Take good care, and as we always say, all power to the people.
0: Every highway
1: and more Much more than this
2: I did my way I've had a few